naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Is that too loud now, or is that all right? Okay. <clears throat> then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we? see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care, take care of you. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, <clears throat> to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As the Lord wills, uh, this will be the final message in this series that we've been looking at on the parables. Uh, there are many <clears throat> short parables, uh, or what could be called parabolic allusions, things that are uh, border on being parables, uh, that we haven't looked at, but I think that we have at least touched on uh, the major parables, and surely... Uh, over these last few months, we've gotten a feel for the fact that Jesus, as the scripture says, he opened his mouth in parables. It was amazing how much it was characteristic of the teaching of the Messiah that he opened his mouth in parables. And he uttered things that had been kept hidden since the foundation of the world. There were things in these parables that no man ever heard for all the ages of humanity until the Lord came and opened his mouth in parables. Well, today then, uh, we want to look at this passage uh, that has been referred to by many as the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, actually, uh, even this is not a parable in the full-blown sense of the word, but it contains parables. Uh, we have here a threefold picture First of all, a king sitting on a throne, and secondly, a judge passing sentence, and thirdly, a shepherd separating a flock. All those things are involved in this uh, account here, <clears throat> and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of these pictures is a reality. He is truly uh, a king, not just a king, he is the king of kings, and he will sit on a throne. In fact, the whole idea of a throne and all that's meant by a throne, actually he's the only one who ever has or ever will sit on a throne in the ultimate sense. He is not just a judge, he is the judge. Every other judge that's ever sat in a court, that's just a faint shadow of the one ultimate judge. He's the ultimate judge. He's the final judge. And uh, he's the true judge. Uh, to be a judge, to have a, a judge, uh, or to, to have the work of a judge be your life calling is a privilege. Just uh, like some of these others, it's a great privilege to be a judge because you're uh, entering in a little bit into what Christ is. He is the great judge. Same way with being a king, the kings of this earth. 
in some faint way, they're given the privilege of uh, being a picture or a shadow of the reality of the great King of Kings. And the same thing is true of shepherds. It's, it's a blessed thing to do the work of a shepherd because there is a great shepherd, the great shepherd, and the Bible calls him the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews 13. In uh, Peter, in 1 Peter, he's called the chief shepherd. So there are all these lesser shepherds. He's the chief shepherd. And, of course, in John 10, he calls himself the good shepherd. So he's the reality of all these pictures. He's the king, he's the judge, and he's the true shepherd of which all human shepherds are just a faint shadow. Now, this is truly an incredible portion of Scripture. Uh, Just uh, the timing of it and the scope of it and what's said here. Here's a Jewish carpenter uh, just on the verge of being executed as a criminal by by Imperial Rome. In just a little while, he's going to be executed as a criminal and uh, cast outside out in the refuse heap of uh, Jerusalem. And right before this all happens, he speaks of himself as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and the judge of all nations and all men. And uh, the separator, as this shepherd, the separator of men for life or for death. Think of this here in verse 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, he said this just a short time before he was going to be crucified. And uh, we've talked many times about the folly of this idea of saying that uh, Jesus was a great teacher, but I don't believe he was the Son of God. Here's another example of it. If he was a great teacher, what did he teach? Well, he taught that one day all the nations of the world... All humanity would be gathered before him, and that he would be the final judge, and he would send men to heaven and hell. That's amazing. Uh, No one has ever made statements like this. And so here he is. Try to find some of the other great religious teachers of the world. Uh, When did Mohammed ever say that all men were going to be gathered before him and be judged on the basis of their attitude toward him and that he was the one who would send them into heaven or into hell? When did Confucius ever say something like that? They never did. Uh, Here is the Lord Jesus Christ uh, presenting himself as the king and judge of all the world. Now, There is a lot of instruction in this passage, and uh, I'd like for us just to begin, I think, by looking, considering these three roles, the king, the judge, and the shepherd. First of all, the king, then. Notice that the Lord Jesus does refer to himself here directly as a king. Now, that's rare. In fact, I think maybe this is the only place where he directly, during his earthly ministry, because they had so many wrong ideas, you see, of what a king was going to be, they wanted to come and make him a king. And rather than cater to that, he didn't talk about that. But here he does present it. He says that he is a king. Notice it in verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... He will sit on his glorious throne. That's where a king sits. And then in verse 34, it's very clear. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. So he's clearly talking about the son here. He's talking about himself. He's the king, and he's sitting on the throne. Uh, Very clear. And then again in verse 40, then the king will answer and say to them. So King Jesus. And just a little while after this, you remember, Pilate will ask him. He'll say, so are you king? And he'll say, yes. 
you've said. You, you're the one that said it, and that's the truth. Let's just look back as we think of this. He says, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne as a king. Now let's turn back to Daniel uh, chapter 7. You know, uh, the Lord's favorite, well, what? let me ask you, what was the Lord's favorite name for himself, his favorite designation? How did he refer to himself the most? Son of Man, that was his favorite designation. And it's so perfect because it's a position of humility. He's the Son of Man. And yet... Uh, there's more to it than that. And we see it here in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 and verse 9. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Now think of this, you know, the, this river of life in Revelation, river of water coming out, crystal clear water. Here's a river of fire flowing out from the throne. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, this powerful king that's represented, or this center of power, the horn. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, look at this, one like a son of man was coming. And you remember Jesus said this when he was standing before Pilate, and before the uh, when he was standing before the Jewish leaders, he said, he said, you shall see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. And so here's the Son of Man with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here's this one, the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven and sitting on a throne in a kingdom. And uh, so Jesus here, and uh, it comes up again, we'll look at this a little bit, it comes up again at the trial. He is the Son of Man, not just in the sense that he was lowly and humble and born of a man, but he's the fulfillment of this prophecy in Daniel 7. He's the Son of Man that's going to take up his throne and rule over all men and all nations for all time. He's the King. And he tells us back in Matthew 25, he says that he's going to sit on a throne, and he says specifically this will be a glorious throne. Verse 31 when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Now this throne will be glorious beyond imagination. If you can imagine all the multitudes, the millions of men in the, in the armies of the world and all the masses of people down through humanity, all of humanity, all through history gathered before that throne, that's a glorious throne. And the actual, not just uh, uh, some sentence handed out as to whether you'll spend five years in jail or not or whatever, but a sentence of eternal judgment handed out from that throne. 
think of what think of each individual think of yourself coming up there in the presence of millions that one little speck standing before that throne that's the kind of glory that throne will have and notice here and one more passage on this back in Matthew 16 he talks about this also let me just read it to you he says in verse 27 <clears throat> Well, verse 26, what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. So there he's already taught it earlier in Matthew 16. This is even clearer here. He comes in the glory of the Father and in His own glory. And angels are mentioned. Uh, they're in Matthew 16 as well as in Matthew 25. And He says here in verse 31, And all the angels with Him. <clears throat> Not just a few angels, but all of the angels. Untold myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands. And you know that passage we read in Daniel which is talking about God the Father, uh, it says thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Well, all of those are going to be given to Christ on his throne. So in other words, co-equal in glory with the Father. And I think these angels are mentioned because, uh, partly because they're part of his glory. That's part of the great glory of the... Son of Man, that he'll have all the angels attending him. Um, you don't need to turn to this, but another passage, Revelation 5, uh, 11 and 12, talks about this. It says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, what? Worthy is the Lamb. So they're worshiping and falling down before this lamb on the throne. Well, uh, the king. But secondly, he presents himself here as the judge. And we saw that in that passage I read in Matthew 16. He says when he returns in this glory, he will recompense every man according to his deeds. <clears throat> And another passage that he spoke at his trial in Matthew 26, uh, it says uh, in Matthew 26 and verse 64, he says, you have, uh, well, the, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now see, that's his coming as judge, rendering judgment to men. We know that in a sense, uh, anything that God does, the whole Trinity does. The Father does it, the Son does it, the Holy Spirit does it, like in creation. Uh, the Father created all things. God spoke the worlds into existence, and yet it says the Spirit was moving over the waters and caused these things to happen. In another place it says all things were created by Him, by Christ. And so the whole, all of the Trinity does these great works. And yet, in this matter of judgment, it's still especially the work of the Son. To judge. Now this is quite a thing because we're talking about not just God, but the God-man, the man, Christ Jesus, judging <clears throat> every man in the world. Let's look at some verses on this. John chapter 5. You see, we are going to stand before this great king. And yet at the same time, we're going to be standing before a man. And he's the one that's going to pass judgment. John chapter 5 and verse uh, 
22 and 23, he says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now that tells you about the Trinity right there. He, anytime you honor Christ as much as you honor the Father, that means you worship him as God in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then down in verse 26, Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He gave him authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice, and shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, do you think in this way? When you think of all men at the end of time appearing before God to be judged, you realize they're going to be appearing before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who they're going to appear before. And he's the one that's going to do the judging. Let me read you another verse on this. Acts 17 and verse uh, 31. <clears throat> it says, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man. And Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Things in heaven and things on earth and so on. Now, let's just look back just for a minute. I, I don't have too much to say on this, but go back to Daniel 7. I think this is... Quite an amazing thing. <clears throat> um, verse 9 of Daniel 7, it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Apparently talking here of some kind of a vision that he had of God the Father. And yet think of this. These descriptions are the same ones that are used concerning Christ in Revelation 1. You remember that? The hair of his head like pure wool and so on. And this river of fire, his, he was, his feet and everything were glowing like they'd been in a furnace. In other words, what it appears when you get over to the New Testament, and there's clearer light on this, it appears that all the things that are said about God the Father here in judgment, are true of the Son. That's what he's going to be doing. Well, anyway, um, these angels, we're told, we're thinking about, back in Matthew 25, we're thinking about Christ as the judge here, and we're told that the angels will all be with him. And part of the reason is as part of the glory of this king but also it's part of his work as a judge because the angels will have part in executing the judgment and Jesus teaches that and this again this is another thing that we just doesn't quite seem real to us but Jesus teaches it over and over doesn't he that the angels will be involved in executing the judgment uh, let me just remind you of some uh, this is from a parable in Matthew 13 that we've already looked at. He says, <clears throat> he says this, Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, now here he is, the one judging, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And a little bit later in this parable of the dragnet, 
so it will be at the end of the age. The angel shall come forth and shall take out the wicked from among the righteous. Now, beloved, these aren't just little pictures, you know, fairy tales. What's going to happen is there are going to be personal powers come and separate the wicked, the saved, and the lost. That's what's going to happen. And the wicked are going to find themselves carried by angelic powers to judgment. Now, what else? Well, in uh, Matthew 24, let me read this to you. He says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So here's the angels. They will actually go out and gather Christians. I mean, Christians are going to be gathered up. We saw that on Lazarus, didn't we? He died and the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. I mean, the the first thing that happens is not going to be meeting the Lord. The first thing that happens is angels picking up the elect and taking them to the king and picking up the wicked and taking them to judgment. Well, uh, one more verse on this, very parallel to what he says here in Matthew 25, and that's 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul almost repeats what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 10, he says, For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Depart from me. You see, it's exactly parallel to Matthew 25. And the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. So when Paul thinks of the judgment day, he thinks of the Lord coming in flaming fire and all his mighty angels with him. Well, again, think of what the Lord is saying about himself in these few verses here in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes uh, in, in his glory, and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. So, he's the king, he's the judge, and finally... He presents himself as the shepherd. Verse 32, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Notice the actions here. Verse 32, he will separate them. Verse 33, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now at this point, nothing's been said to them at all, but they're put, one on the right and one on the left. At that point, every man will know where he stands before the words have come forth. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left, and then verse 34, and the king will say. So he separates, he puts them, and he says... Let me just say a few things here. First of all, it's clear the Lord is dealing here with individuals. Now, there have been some crazy ideas about this passage. One of them is the idea that this is talking about sheep and goat nations. And he's going to separate the sheep nations from the goat nations. And a lot of, and depending on how they treated Israel and that type of thing. That's not it at all. This is talking about 
the judgment of individual men, the final judgment at the end of time. It says, depart from me, accursed ones. It doesn't say, depart from me, accursed nations. And how do you put a nation in hell anyway? See, that's made up of people. And uh, if you ever find a sheep nation, I'd like to see what it is, because uh, every system of this world is corrupt and polluted and unrighteous. So, uh, like I said, some crazy ideas by even some good men on some of these things. But this is talking about individuals, uh, the judgment of individuals. And notice here, too, there are two and only two groups. I mean, there is no third group. There's no in-between group. Everybody here today is either a sheep or a goat, every single person. You're one or the other. There's no in-between. You're not a shade of gray, you know, and kind of a part sheep and part goat. That's not possible. It's just one or the other, simply that. Uh, every person in the world <clears throat> falls into one of two categories. Jesus teaches that over and over and over, doesn't he? There are just two groups. There's no growing into becoming a Christian or something like that. You're kind of halfway a Christian, but you're not really a Christian. You're either, you're either under the wrath of God or you are justified and every sin is totally gone and you're perfectly righteous in the sight of God. That's the only two possibilities, one or the other, either justified or condemned, either blessed or cursed. One of, the, one of the two. Now what is said then about the blessed? <clears throat> the first thing that's said about them, in kind of a, almost an indirect way, is that they are sheep. Verse 33, he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. <clears throat> the other group is made up of goats. Sheep, what's it stand for? Well, Innocent, simple, that, all of those things. But the, one of the biggest things about sheep is, is that they follow the shepherd. They hear the voice of the shepherd. If you put a pig outside the pen, it'll head for the woods. If you put a sheep outside the pen, it'll stand outside and bleat, you know, and want back in. There's a sense of following the shepherd, hearing the shepherd's voice. Uh, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, I protect them, they go in and out, and so on. So this is sheep. But the thing is here, and this is what we need to get, there is a difference in nature between this group and the other group. They're sheep. These are goats. They're different. In other words, it's not just their actions. Now, we'll talk about actions as we go on here, but the big thing to remember is that there is a difference in their person. It's manifested by their actions, but there's a difference in their person. They are sheep. They have a different nature. The only way that you can produce the actions that will lead to this sentence of blessedness is if you have a different nature and you're a different person. We'll look at that more as we go on. Second thing that we learn about them is that the reason that they're different is not in themselves, but it's totally in the grace of God. Notice the first thing he says in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the first thing he says about them. This kingdom, he says, this kingdom has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Think of this. Before God created, before the earth existed, this is not some afterthought on God's part, before he ever spoke the universe into existence, Already there was a kingdom prepared for certain people. Now that's what he says. Come ye blessed of my father, inherit this kingdom that I already had ready for you before the world was ever created. Isn't that something? 
Now you see it takes it right out of the hand. As you go on farther here, you look at all the works that they did, and that's all that he brings up is their works. But you see it takes it back to grace before they were ever born. The grace of God is the reason that their nature is different, and the fact that their nature is different is the reason that their works are different. But the works show whether or not the nature is different and whether or not grace has been shown to them. So, the reason they are different is not in themselves, but solely in the grace of God. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, both of them talk about those whose names have been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And... uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from the foundation of the world, from all eternity. All right, what else? Well, the third thing that we see here concerning the sheep, concerning the blessed, is that the indicator of who they are is their actions. Now he says, verse 34, Come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, and then he goes right into a list of works. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So in other words, the indicator of who they are, the indicator of heaven or hell, is their works, their good works. And in particular, their good works toward Christ, their love of Christ and their love of Christ's people. In other words, their love of Christ evidenced by their love for Christians. I hope we can get this. John says, we know, if we're a Christian or not, we know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. You don't have to make yourself want to be with Christians if you're a Christian. You want to be, it's just there. You have that desire, you have that love for Christians. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. I remember whenever I first became a Christian, I was... Uh, almost 16 years old, and uh, I was living down in uh, Neosho, Missouri with my brother-in-law, and I started back home to Sedalia on the bus, uh, riding late at night, and I met met a fellow there, I think his, well, his name was Stanley Manis. I've never heard of him since or heard from him or anything, but he was a Christian. I had my Bible there, and we started talking. And there was this love. I still remember the guy to this day. All these years later, what happened? It's a stranger on the bus, but we both knew God. And we talked, looking out the window at the moon shining in, moonlight shining in. We talked about the things of God. We were in heavenly places. Because you, you yourselves are taught by God to love believers. And what happens is when you love God and love Christ and love his people, you do things that correspond to that. That just comes out of you. Now, look at these things here. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Boy, we're slow on that, aren't we? But That's what it says. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now he's talking particularly about the least of these, my brethren, one of my brethren. And uh, we'll have opportunities to show kindness and love and compassion in concrete ways toward believers especially. Well, we ask ourselves, when the Lord, uh, when we stand before the Lord, is he going to say, I I was in prison and you came and visited me? 
I hope that he will, because that's the basis of whether or not we're going to be in heaven or not. That's the index. And uh, if you say, Lord, when did we? Then you're in good company, because that's what they said. They said, Lord, when did we? In other words, and this, you know, a person can look at these things and say, well, I'm going to go out and start doing this so I can be in heaven. I'll go out and start giving to the poor, and I'll start feed, uh, uh, clothing the naked and so on. I'll do all these things so I'll be in heaven. You'll go to hell for sure. Because what happened? They got there, and the Lord says, you've done all this. And they said, when did we ever do that? In other words, it was spontaneous things, things that flowed out of their nature. Unconsciously, they loved the brethren. And so these, the, the next thing we learn about these sheep is that they realize they're unworthy, they're humble. They can't remember the, quote, good things they've done. And you see, that's what makes them good. Those things that stand out in your mind as the great things you've done are all going to burn up. They're worthless. But the sheep are doing things spontaneously for love of Christ that they don't even remember. And the things that they can't remember, isn't this something? That act of kindness toward a fellow believer that a Christian can't even remember doing Jesus remembers all down through the ages, and he's going to bring it up again at the last day and say, this is what you did. Say, Lord, when did I ever do that? It's an evidence, you see, the very fact that it's forgotten, the very fact that they're not aware of it, is an evidence that it's real. The things that you think are great, big, and important, and what you've done for God, and this really shows what you are, those things are worthless. But the things that are unconscious and forgotten and spontaneous, uh, those things will show who you really are. And notice this, it's not great things. It's not doing miracles and casting out demons and prophesying. It's the little day-by-day -day things. There's plenty of room in heaven for people that live day-by-day -day and haven't done any of the great things. <clears throat> in fact... That's the thing that the Lord's going to bring up at the judgment. And notice this. Not a single sin of these people is mentioned. He says, look at all these things you did. This is why. You, it, this is what proves that you're truly a Christian. And he brings up all these good things, and they marvel, and they say, Lord, when did we ever do these things? And he says, come, and what wonderful words these are. Think to have Christ say to you, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. You come to me. What an incredible thing. The greatest blessing imaginable for Christ to tell you to come to him at the last day. Well, what's said about the wicked then in contrast? <clears throat> Verse 41 and following. First of all, <clears throat> they're goats. Headstrong independent, rebellious, they're goats. But notice what the Lord says to them, verse 41, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angel. <clears throat> Somebody pointed out three things here. First of all, separation. Separation from God, depart from me. It's the opposite of come to me, depart from me. And you remember the Lord says this several times. It came up in, back in Matthew uh, chapter 7. Uh, he, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. In Luke chapter 13, uh, he said, men will come and say to him, Lord, you taught in our streets. You ate and drank in our presence and so on. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all ye evildoers, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What could be more terrible than to have the Lord Jesus Christ say to you on that great day, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity separation from God. That's what hell is. 
away from the presence of the Lord. So separation and then association. Who are we associated with? Those that are uh, judged. Who are they associated with? <clears throat> Depart into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So in other words, it's not a devil's hell. It's not that Satan's going to be tormenting those that are in hell. God is the one that puts the devil in hell. But nevertheless, this is where those that are accursed are going to spend eternity. They're going to spend eternity in the company of the most wicked people and devils that, that can be imagined. I mean, that's where they will spend their time and their association. Somebody said this is a gruesome togetherness. Imagine dwelling in hell with demons and the devil. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Association. Separation from God and being associated with all that's evil and in rebellion against God. And then thirdly, <clears throat> fire. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. And we looked at this quite a bit last week on this account of the rich man and Lazarus. But uh, Jesus uses this picture over and over again, fire. Well, what was the indicator of their state? What does he say about them? Verse 41, depart from me. Verse 42, for... I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now, you, don't, you won't even need to bring that up. It's sufficient to damn you for the Lord to mention the things you haven't done. Isn't that something? The judgment here it was all negative. It was stuff they. It was all sins of omission, things they didn't do. Every one of these things is something they didn't do. Only sins of omission. In other words, lack of love for Christ, lack of love for His people. It just wasn't there. They may have tried to quote live a good life and all that, but as far as just love for. Christ and love. If it, you remember what Paul says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. If you don't love him, that's the thing to test yourself by. <clears throat> Is there any spontaneous love for Christ? Just you just love him. That's a, that's the evidence of being a sheep. What else does it say about them? Well, they were surprised. Just like the sheep were surprised, they were surprised. They themselves, verse 44, they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty and so on not care for you? Now, this surprise is not a result of humility. It's a result of self-delusion. They think that they're good. Just the opposite surprise with the, with the sheep. The sheep can't figure out how they ever did anything right. These people can't figure out why they'd be condemned. When did I mess up? What, what, when didn't I do the right thing? You know, Self-delusion. And verse 46 then in closing, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When, when Dick and I were in Germany, we ran into a teaching that uh, all men are ultimately going to be saved, even the devil himself is going to be saved. And part of the basis for that teaching was that these words in the Greek uh, for eternal, having to do with eons, aeonian, uh, that those just mean ages. It doesn't mean eternal, it just means ages of time. Well, here you have it right here. These will go away into Aeonian punishment and the righteous into Aeonian life. Now question, how long are the righteous going to be saved? 
just a short time, just for a little age, I hope not, it's forever. And if you really want to see that and uh, nail down the meaning of these things, it's very clear in the scripture the Lord does that. He says their worm does not die. He doesn't use the word Aeonian. He says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That just says it. And another thing that's used in the scripture is without end. And it just says this will be without end. Now, how can you make it any clearer than that? When something is without end, it doesn't end. It is eternal. And that's, what, that's exactly what the word means, eternal. So, not just as we saw again last week, not just the idea even of timelessness, but the idea of fixity. It's fixed. Uh, we just, we cannot, we really don't feel most of the time, we don't feel the fact life is real and life is earnest. I mean, it, it really is. We just kind of sleep along and there are weighty things. There's, there's heaven and hell hanging right there. And we just kind of drift along and you know everything's going to, and all of a sudden, you know, bam, men are here on the brink of eternity. And lo and behold, all these things that Jesus said were not just little stories and fairy tales, but he really is the king of all kings and all men are gathered before him. And here we are facing him. And our lives are going to show whether or not we're really sheep or really a goat. And the solution to the thing, of course, is flee to Christ now and ask him to save us and change us and make us a new person and give us a heart of love for him. Well, let's pray. Father, we think of that uh, description of men in sin. It says, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. But, uh, but that one description, haters of God, and uh, what a contrast to the Christian, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Lord, it's impossible for us to love you. Oh, in rebellion and in sin, we pray for each one here. That's a goat that you have mercy upon them. And... Uh, Take away the stony heart and give them a heart of flesh, a heart of love, a living heart to love you and serve you and know you. And uh, Lord, we think of how being a Christian is so much more than doing these different deeds. These things are just what flows from uh, grace coming into a life. We pray for, for the reality of this. We ask you to do these things. We thank you, Lord, for the miracle of a new heart and having just come in welling up within us love to Christ, just a desire to cling to him and to love him and serve him and know him. Thank you for this miracle in the hearts of those who know you. Pray that you do it in other lives here today. In Jesus' name, amen.